Welcome to this evening's public lecture. I'm Crisantia Gheru, Professor of Information Systems at the Department of Information Systems and Innovation, uh, at the group, rather, Information Systems and Innovation Department of Management here at the LSE. And in this, uh, and I'm going to chair this lecture. In this chairing role, I'm delighted to welcome this evening's um, uh, speaker, uh, Professor Ian Ayers, who will talk about um, his, the title of his talk is Why Thinking by Numbers is the New uh, Way to Be Smart, which is an exciting uh, title. Uh, Ian Ayers is professor at the University of Yale, both at the law school and the uh, School of Management. So he is a man of many talents, and in addition to these two academic areas where he works, uh, law and econometrics, he is also influencing public opinion as a commentator on the public radio in the States, as well as a columnist in magazines like Forbes and the New York Times, and uh, he has written many books. He is a prolific uh, author, eight books, over a hundred articles, quite a lot of work for an academic of his age. <laughs> He's quite young, as you can see. And in fact, the event this evening is, uh, uh, launches his latest book, which has another very interesting title, Super Crunches, How can everything, anything, how anything can be predicted. Now, this is an interesting, bold title, quite enigmatic, perhaps, and I had the pleasure to read the book. It is indeed bold in its arguments, but it's so very clear, unfortunately, it doesn't leave many things enigmatic anymore after you read it. <coughs> but it is a pleasure to uh, read it. Now, before I invite, invite Professor Ayers to uh, deliver his lecture, I would like to mention that uh, this event is supported by the LSE's annual fund, which is built with, uh, uh, by donations by alumni and friends. And we are really very uh, grateful to the generosity of uh, uh, these people. And the fund has uh, offered the grant to uh, the organization of uh, public talks uh, th this year. So uh, this is really uh, something we are very, very glad about. Now, um, I would like to invite, uh, without any more de delay, Professor Ayers to give his talk, which will last for about an hour, and then we will have time for questions uh, as well. Professor Ayers. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one woman that I've searched for my entire life, I, I found. The person I found in Lance is, is incredible. eHarmony helped me find the love of my life. At eHarmony.com, we match you based on the deep dimensions of compatibility, essential for a meaningful relationship. And without any question, I will love you for the rest of my life. And so I could not be happier than at any point to be able to ask you 
if you would do me the honor <laughs> of becoming my wife. Now, uh, can anybody predict uh, how she's going to respond? <laughs> this uh, eHarmony uh, represents uh, a new wisdom of crowds. Uh, in the old wisdom of crowds, you'd ask a bunch of people how many uh, jelly beans you think uh, are in the jar. But eHarmony has done a very different model uh, with regard to dating services. Instead of asking the crowd or instead of asking you who you think you'll match well with, uh, eHarmony uh, uh, asks you something different. They go out, in that commercial they said they're, uh, they look at 29 dimensions of personality. They find out what kind of personality you have, and then they go out and they look at thousands of, of uh, happily married people and they try to find out what kind of personalities match well. And at the end of the day, they may match you with somebody you never would have thought that you would like. This is a, this is a, different, uh, a different approach. who's here, she can put in her artists and she finds people that she never would have thought of. So both of these uh, examples, uh, eHarmony and Pandora.com, uh, are examples of the rise of data-driven decision-making in field after field. Uh, statistical analysis is starting to impact uh, real-world decision in ways that we never would have thought possible. And these super crunchers, these people that are doing the analyses, they can make better predictions using two different statistical tools, uh, regressions, which I'll talk about in randomization. And, uh, and what's, what's really going on here, they're making predictions that allow them to tease out the wellsprings of human behavior. They're trying to find out what causes what and uh, what works. Uh, and a big theme of this that I want you to keep an eye on is uh, traditional experts who base their predictions on experience and intuition, they're tending uh, to lose out. By the way, when I wander over here in the back, can you still hear me? Great. Yeah, well, it might, though, be for a podcast, so they may just be recording off of this. It also it makes me feel powerful. Uh, so what exactly is super crunching? Well, it's uh, bringing together, and why is it new? There's been regression. There have been randomized studies for a long time. What's new about it is uh, three S's, the size, speed, and scale. Okay. How's, we feel better about this? And uh, size, speed, and scale, the size of these data sets are monstrously large. We have to, part of the message of this talk is you have to uh, get used to not just gigabytes, but a thousand gigabytes or a terabyte. Uh, Dell will now sell you a, a desktop computer with a terabyte of uh, hard uh, drive storage. Uh, and 
Terra comes from the Greek word for monster, and there are about 20 terabytes of text in the Library of Congress. Uh, that's a lot of text, but Walmart has 500 terabytes of data, and Axiom has over 750. Google has over 4,000 terabytes of data. There, there's, there's been a revolution in the ability to capture and cheaply store data, and that is really making a new type of uh, number crunching possible. The speed and the scale of the impact are also impressive. These are, these are not uh, uh, number crunching where you write up a report and two years later find out what's happening, but in, the, in, the, in a matter, sometimes we'll see in a matter of hours, you can start changing your behavior based on, on number crunching. So what are the two approaches? The, uh, one of the approaches is the regression analysis. And uh, for those that haven't thought, uh, haven't been exposed to this, you uh, are trying to figure out uh, the estimates uh, uh, for weights in a, an equation, often just a linear equation, where there are multiple factors that might influence a prediction. And the, this regression procedure, it separately controls for the individual factors, and it gives estimates of whether each factor has a positive or negative influence on, on some prediction, and it measures how strongly each one of these factors influences the, the outcome. And here's, uh, and basically, it's trying to, if there are 10 possible causes, the regression will try to figure out which ones positively influence the probability of something, which one negatively influence, what's the degree. Uh, these are trying to tease out cause. And uh, a great example of how this happened, this, uh, this handsome uh, economist is Orly Ashenfelter, one of, the, uh, one of my heroes. And uh, he has a couple bottles of Bordeaux wine in his hand. And while there are these smug um, uh, wine critics uh, like Robert Parker, who have made uh, millions of dollars by um, <clears throat> swishing and spitting uh, Bordeaux wines. They, they go in and take a very early vintage and they swish it around in their mouth when it's really uh, quite undrinkable. And they then pronounce that this is going to be a great vintage or not. Uh, Ashenfelter came in and he estimated a linear regression of wine quality. He had a bunch of data on wine quality, and the regression came back and put on these numeric weights relating the impact of winter rainfall, average growing temperature, and the harvest rainfall. And it turns out that these, just these three variables are very powerful in predicting the quality of the wine. If you have too much harvest, you, want to, don't, you don't want to have a lot of rain at the end because it dilutes out the quality of the grape. So that's, that comes in negative in wine quality. And um, uh, average growing temperature increases the quality. By the way, what's been the impact of global warming on the quality of Bordeaux wines? What about you, sir? What do you think? Well, look here. We got a plus 0.6. Global warming. But you're nodding your head. What do you think? It increase it. All right, so this is a convenient truth that... Uh, the last 10 years, if you like Bordeaux wines, the last 10 years have been spectacular because the, uh, the, 10 of the, la the last 10 years are uh, 
represent are among the top 20 hottest years of the growing season. And uh, it turns out that, and he can do this before uh, anybody ever drinks a drop of the wine, because his data is there, there to do. So this is an example of regression analysis. And in some ways, it's the end of the traditional expert. The, the old guard, uh, they uniformly resist this. Robert Parker uh, called it an absolute total sham, a Neanderthal way. It's absurd as to be laughable. He does not like this. Of course, you know, it's threatening his uh, franchise. And uh, it's this, just this same technology that we saw with regard to wines. That's what's behind uh, eHarmony's compatibility predictions and Pandora's uh, music box pr predictions. Uh, but this regression is not just on these examples. It's also behind evidence-based medicine predictions, credit uh, score predictions. Uh, people are trying to use your credit score in the United States to predict all kinds of activities, like whether you'll return a rental car on time. And it's behind sports predictions. Uh, baseball in the United States has gone through a revolution of uh, number crunchers. And this is really important, so let me pause. One of the very coolest things about statistical prediction is that this, the very one procedure that not only gives you a prediction, it simultaneously tells you how precise that prediction was. Sometimes if there's uh, really good data, it will make a prediction and tell you it's quite confident. Who is that it? It is the regression procedure itself will tell you it's confident in the uh, precision of that prediction. Sometimes there's just not good historical data. And the regression will still make a prediction, but it will simultaneously tell you that it, it's not a very precise uh, prediction because there's not good data. Humans don't do that, okay? Humans don't tell you the confidence, or if they do, they tend to be overconfident, as we'll see later on in this talk. So what's an example of this? This is, by the way, some super crunching you can do yourself. Some Faircast is a very cool website which uh, will go in. Let's say you wanted to fly between New York and Chicago in a couple of months. You can go in there and it will predict whether you should buy. And you want to know, should I buy my ticket now or should I wait in the hopes that the ticket fare will drop? Faircast uh, crunches something like, uh, 35 terabytes of historical airline price data, and they will predict whether the price is going to go up or down, but this is the cool thing that I'm telling you about. It not only tells you the prediction, it tells you how confident it is. And indeed, here's another version of Faircast where it's predicting that the price is going to drop, and it's a different confidence level. And Faircast is so confident that they'll even sell you uh, uh, fare insurance for 10 bucks. <laughs> the other, so, so one of the big tools of super crunching is regression. The other one, and I know I'm not supposed to put that down just for a second, I'm getting hot. Thanks very much. The, the other one is randomized trials. This is also not a new technique and used for uh, uh, decades upon decades, at least uh, sporadically medicine, but it's coming to all kinds of new eras in the last decade. So we know it's the gold standard of drug testing. What do you do? You have a pop, you have some, some subjects, 
you flip coins, half of them you give the drug to, half of them you don't, and you look to see uh, uh, what, uh, what is the difference in the averages. Uh, what's kind of beautiful here is randomization creates its own control group. Both groups should have similar distributions on every characteristics except the fact that you gave one of them drugs, and so it's a natural way uh, that you can figure out what causes what, uh, and it actually fits very well with the regression technique. The regression technique is based on historical data, but when historical data runs out, when there's not good historical data on the thing that you're interested in, you can proactively create your own data by flipping coins. And this is happening more and more, as you'll we're about to see. So uh, the internet is the big breakthrough. You can do uh, uh, you can do randomized trials on the internet all over the place. Matter of fact, um, would you help me on this? Take a little test. Uh, what's your name, Matt, madam? You right there. Yeah. What's your name, Francis? So this is a real t uh, test. <laughs> that monster.com ran, okay? They, they wanted this as part, uh, an important element of their web page for uh, employers. And uh, people that got to this link, half of them saw this and half of them saw this. You, I can tell, Francis, are an expert on graphic design. Which one of these was more effective? Top or bottom? Bottom. I agree with you. Aren't these curved things much more pleasing? And graphic artists, you know, they know an awful lot. But, you know, a beautiful thing about a randomized test, you don't have to have any artistic sensibility. You just follow the click-through rate and find out which one actually led employers to post jobs, uh, which makes monster money. And, Francis, there's some bad news here. Uh, you and I didn't do well. The employers spent 8.31% percent more uh, per visit on this top one. Okay, I have no idea why, but you know what? Monster doesn't care. What they, they want to know is, and this is a lot of money, 8.31 percent for doing something as trivial as this. Uh, it's happening all over the internet. Another, uh, And these randomized tests, they're very transparent. At the end of the day, you just compare two averages. So as opposed to regression, where I have to be honest with you, there's a bit of trust me statistical analysis that audience doesn't often understand what it is, but this is quite powerful. You know, I just flipped coins. What else could be driving it? These employers saw everything else was the same, but one saw this and the other, and they spent 8.31% more. And so here's another one. Do you guys have Joanne Fabrics here in the UK? It's a very big um, place to buy fabrics and um, buttons and zippers and things like that. But you don't call them zippers here, do you? Okay. Uh, and, uh, and so they, one of the beautiful things about this is you don't, it's so cheap and quick to do, you don't have to just test one thing. You can go and test two dozen things uh, because you, and then just pull it down if it doesn't work. And so, so this, this was a bizarre one that wasn't even in their top uh, two dozen. Somebody there said, well, why don't we run a deal where we say buy two sewing machines and save 10%. Joanne Fabrics doesn't sell sewing machines. People don't go there to buy it. And it's also a stupid idea because no one needs to buy two sewing machines. 
all right? Uh, but they threw this, but still a 10% discount is it's such a high uh, margin item that this could make them money. And it turned out it was a bonanza. It increased their uh, revenue per visitor by a whopping 209%. This was a big part of it. After the fact, now they have a story, they actually were turning their customers into salespeople because one customer would call up a friend and say, hey, I want to buy a sewing machine. Would you join me in that? And the, the power of this is this, you start seeing the results of this not after three months. You can see this after three hours because if you have a million people hitting the site, you just start seeing these different versions and sometimes they run 20 different versions simultaneously, and you can see the horse race graph out over hours uh, and just start switching to the ones that work best. Now these are, by the way, these are, uh, Joanne Fabric is not typical, but it, what is pretty standard is you can get an extra 10 to 20% better click-throughs or stickiness of your web pages or uh, you can capture 10 to 20% more names. Whatever you want to do, you can do 10 to 20% better if you randomize, do randomized testing on your website. Uh, and, there, and so if, if you have a website and you're not doing it, start. Okay? That's a, uh, and it's not just marketing, by the way, and it's not just on the web. You can randomly test uh, all kinds of things. You can test your standard for uh, what level you should uh, accept people into the LSC or accept a job applicant. One of the things that uh, I've actually been involved in is randomized testing can help prove whether something called a commitment bond can help employees to quit smoking or lose weight. This is kind of sophomore economics, but uh, at the beginning of this calendar year, I weighed 30 pounds more and I was filled with self-disgust and I, uh, and I am an economist, and I believe in incentives. And so I put at risk uh, $500 a week to safely start losing weight a pound a week until I got down to uh, a healthy weight and then maintain it. And it's worked like gangbusters for me, okay? I haven't, even though I put $26,000 at risk, I haven't lost any dollars yet. And by the way, who's on the other side? Charity's on the other side. And I have a mean enforcer who's taken lots of money from people in the past. And this has really helped me. Uh, this other person on the other side, Dean Carlin, uh, he's used randomized trials in the Philippines uh, to show that similar commitment bonds uh, have really helped people quit smoking. In the Philippines, a commitment bond has changed the success. These are a, of a group of people that wanted to quit. And randomly, they offered half of them an ability to go into a commitment bond where put down some money, and if you don't quit, you'll forfeit it to charity, and the other half they didn't give this opportunity to. The people that didn't get the opportunity had a 5% success rate on quitting smoking. The people with the commitment bond had a 40% success rate. Pretty powerful evidence that at least in the Philippines, in this one experiment, that a commitment bond helps. It helps the heirs, helps people in the Philippines, and now Dean and I are starting a company called Stick.com that we're going to launch in time for New Year's resolutions to see if people can, oh, here's a crude markup of it, but we're going to try to go out and we're going to try to get companies to do randomized tests to find out if commitment bonds can help their employees be uh, better people. Uh, 
government is really ahead of a business on this. They've done hundreds of randomized public policy studies uh, in the last 10 years looking at uh, uh, the impact of job search, of uh, having different auditing threats, uh, uh, giving poor people housing vouchers to live in middle-class neighborhoods. Uh, but the, here's my nomination for the most important uh, randomized uh, public policy test that's ever been done. Uh, it's in Mexico. It's a contingent cash program called Progresa. And uh, it, uh, it was contingent cash, uh, some pesos for poor families. If the, child, uh, if the children in that poor family received checkups uh, and the adults received some checkups and pregnant women went for some checkups. And secondly, there would be some pesos. Uh, and, oh, by the way, up here, too, you'd also get some pesos and food transfers. But here you'd get some cash uh, if your kids went to school, 85% uh, more or not. And uh, how did they go out to test it? Well, in 1997, they divided 506 villages into treatment and control groups. So basically 253 uh, uh, in each group. And they ran an experiment. Half of those villages they gave the contingent cash and food to, and half they didn't. And again, it, this seems almost too easy to, uh, you might think, to be called super crunching. Uh, but what's powerful is the, the impact. The progressive boys uh, attended school more, the girls 20% more, serious illness was down, anemia. And here's the real kicker. In the space of two and a half years, the kids in the progressive villages averaged a centimeter taller in two and a half years. Now, I, if any of you guys do public health, that is a huge difference. And it correlates with all kinds of other good health outcomes. You grow, healthy kids grow faster than unhealthy kids. And Progressa, oh, and let's see, I think I'm having to give a talk at LSE now. The impact is uh, amazing. In 2001, this was expanded nationwide in Mexico. and. Uh, and it's been a beacon. Now uh, 30 other countries are offering uh, contingent uh, cash plans to help uh, poor people. So this is, uh, this is an impact that uh, uh, statisticians weren't having before. By the way, just before I leave the, uh, the randomization stuff, let me emphasize the title of this book itself was uh, uh, Super Crunched, that Google AdWords, anybody out there can do your own randomized experiment on the internet through Google AdWords. I, uh, I put up a, a people that were doing searches for things like number crunching and, and, uh, uh, and data mining. I put up, uh, a made a, a randomized experiment. Half of them saw this, half of them saw this. Uh, Francis, I liked this, The End of Intuition, as my favorite title uh, initially. Uh, but super crunchers had 63% more click-throughs, okay? And uh, uh, it gives an extra meaning. It's so much for my intuition. It's the end of, the end of intuition. By the way, another place that you could actually uh, possibly do testing, this is the uh, British cover, which I hope all of you will have it uh, in your arms when you leave here today. Uh, this is the U.S. cover. Uh, 
uh, we could do a, a test of which one we think is better. Uh, so you have these techniques. Uh, it's something that's happening out there. How should we feel about it? Well, first, well, who, who, does, who makes better uh, predictions? And uh, the uh, surprising truth is that there have been now hundreds of studies that have gone out and actually run controlled tests about who does better predictions on all kinds of things, a statistical prediction methodology or humans. And one of my favorites is uh, one of the most recent. It's the Supreme Court uh, test. On, in one corner, we have 83 legal experts. These are law professors and uh, practitioners uh, that uh, uh, bunches of them had actually clerked for the Supreme Court. So these just weren't lawyers. These were luminaries. They knew a lot about it. And the test is to see, we asked them to uh, predict the, all the votes for an entire term, the 2002-2003 term of uh, the U.S. Supreme Court cases. Nine justices, all the cases, predict them. And we actually made it easy. The 83 didn't, all, didn't have to predict all of them. If you were a bankruptcy expert, you only had to predict the bankruptcy cases. If you were a criminal law expert, you only had to predict the justices' votes on the criminal law cases. And, in the, and so that's one corner. we got 83 experts. These are really complicated cases. That's why they go. On the other side, we have an incredibly crude statistical model. It has just six variables. And these have nothing to do with the issues actually in the cases. Did it come out of California? Was, uh, was it a bankruptcy case? Was the government a petitioner? These are... Uh, was the lower court case broadly liberal or conservative? And, uh, and I, I hope by now you can start guessing what the outcome is. The model won. It predicted 75% of the court's decisions correctly, while the legal experts collectively got only 59% right. And this is really important. We are making a fundamental mistake. We Humans do a really good job of predicting simple things. If I shake up a Coke can and I ask you to predict what's going to happen when I open it, that's like one causal factor. We do really well. But when there are more than five or ten causal factors, this is where we tend to think, oh, this is a complicated issue. We need to defer to an expert who has lots of experience. But the more complicated the issue, that's where experts tend to actually do a bad job versus statistics. The experts fall in love with particular factors, and they don't weight the different factors appropriately. The regression, going back to that line regression, does a really good job of putting rough weights on it. So even a crude uh, uh, statistical approach tends in, uh, to do uh, as well and often better than the, uh, the non-statistical approach. By the way, if you want to see, this is uh, for Justice O'Connor, this is actually the statistical algorithm. You start here, you ask, is the lower court decision liberal? And uh, this algorithm says she's going to reverse. If you say no, you then go into some extra boxes. And this is what uh, beat out the experts. Uh, and so how do we know? This is not just a uh, cherry-picking. Paul uh, Meal uh, has done uh, his own, uh, several of his own and cataloged hundreds of studies that test who makes better predictions. 
on everything from marital satisfaction, academic success, IC, uh, ICU, intensive care unit survival, business purchasing, sexual orientation, recidivism, lie detection, uh, and the experts are only appreciably better 6% of the time. The rest of the time is split between uh, ties and studies where the model uh, is uh, appreciably better. So this, that, that, by the way, is a troubling result for those people that uh, have want to cling to a certain kind of superiority of, of humans over machines. And as I said before, uh, why are we doing badly? We don't assign the correct weights to causal factors. And here I got a little test for you. I want you to give the range of answers that uh, you are 90% confident contains the correct answer. And as a matter of fact, Francis, who is on your left? Hmm? Odd, odd, what's your first name? Ori? Okay, I'm going to go, help me out here, just so that everybody, by the way, while, he's, while, I'm, while I'm pestering you, I want everybody else, take the last digit of your telephone number, and, if it's a zero, and I want you to answer the question that is related to the last digit of your telephone number. If it's a zero, answer the tenth question. And just to give you an idea of what we're talking about, but I want you to help me and answer number one. I want you to give me two numbers. Uh, what was Martin Luther King Jr.'s age at death? And I want you to give me a low and a high number that you're 90% uh, confident includes his uh, real age at death. Can you do that for me? 45 and 58. Excellent. And everybody else has done this in their heads. I'm not going to call on everybody. But it, have you already come? you got to come up with two numbers that you're 90% sure. All right. And now we can have a little test here. Uh, uh, by the way, you said you said 45 and 58, so you fell outside. You said you were 90% confident. Now, by the way, you had complete control over this. You could have said six months old and three million years old, <laughs> right? And then you'd be really confident. The thing is, by the way, how many of you out there uh, got it? Uh, your 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 range contained the true answer. Raise your hand. And now close your hand. Raise your hand if you didn't, if you fell outside. And you've got to be raising your hand. <laughs> see, and, and what we see, it should have been that only 10% of you fell outside. But a lot more than, if you looked around, a lot more than 10%. People, uh, uh, and the, the, the answer of this thing, people are damnably overconfident. <laughs> they, uh, they uh, uh, most people miss between four and seven when they should only miss one. They should get 90% of them right. Uh, and, uh, and so this, and so it's not only that we make bad weighting, we don't assign the right causal weights to the regression, but we think we do. And imagine you've been, an you've been anointed as an expert in a complicated field for uh, 20 years. Then you really think you know what's right. That's the problem. The good news, uh, you know, that, uh, is that there's still stuff left for us. Humans are really good at hypothesizing and coming up with hunches. By the way, how am I doing? How much more time do you think I got? You have another 20 minutes. 
Good, good. So we're doing all right. Uh, we're really good at hypothesizing. Uh, too ma- there are too, just too many potential causal variables out there. Machines cannot data mine them all. They can't test them. Humans have to ask the questions. Uh, and th- so they need a, a, a hunch, a theory to get started. And one of the ways to think about this, I'm a great fan of uh, this guy, uh, Aaron Fink, um, who uh, is no longer with us. He was a, a true believer in the benefits of circumcision. And he's a urologist. He was from uh, California. And he's the kind of guy that self-published his own books on circumcision uh, and uh, would sell them out uh, a loon, okay? But, you know, Aaron Fink, um, in 1989, uh, from memory, he published a uh, letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine. And he said, um, there's something about, I think it's called the pupus, this uh the foreskin uh, that uh, he hypothesized that circumcision would reduce the infectivity of AIDS. And the initial reaction was, this guy is a loon who self-publishes his own books. Uh, but some people uh, still followed, some, some number crunchers followed him. And over the next decade, more and more evidence started pointing in this uh, direction. By the way, some of it... Uh, uh, started knocking people over the heads. In Africa, countries that had a, a higher circumcision rate uh, were having lower spread of AIDS. Uh, and it's gotten to the point that within the last couple of years, two randomized studies uh, have closed down early because the evidence of Fink's hypothesis is so strong. And now the Gates Foundation is thinking about having uh, mass subsidies for circumcisions. And uh, this is something that uh, uh, the, the machines would not have come across. So thank God for Aaron Fink. Uh, now, so uh, why, why should you be paying attention? Why is this so important? And my claim is we've got to keep a, an eye on this. It, it impacts us as workers, consumers, and as citizens. Uh, a big result uh, is that it... it um, Line item employees are losing discretion in field after field. uh, This is more than a decade old in the United States. Loan officers used to have a lot of discretion. They'd look you in the eye, shake your hand, and they could have an impact on whether you got a loan. Today, loan officers are glorified secretaries. They input data into a computer, and the computer tells you whether you get the loan or not. Uh, in the old days, local programmers on radio got to have an influence of what songs got played. Today, it's much more centralized. Uh, this is happening uh, not just in these fields. Uh, uh, oh, wait, let me say, by the way, it may be tied even to outsourcing because once you've super crunched the scripts that people are being forced to, uh, to read, uh, then why not have these call centers uh, in other countries? So, uh, let's see if we can listen to this. 
Get ready to read all these words on this page without making a mistake. Look at the letter. We're listening the to a, a first grade class yes, of what's called Get direct instruction. Get ready to read this word the fast way. Get ready. Get and it's an example it of ready. the uh, demise Get ready. of uh, discretion, not just for Get loan officers, Boys and girls but this is a class that out. is completely scripted in teaching reading. What words? Listen to the teacher. She repeats the same phrases over and over. Get ready. Yes, playing. Get ready. Must. Yes, must. Get ready. And this may not be the most fun place way to teach. By the way, while most Americans wouldn't recognize this audio, if I replay it again with this video, it became it's very memorable to us. This is President Bush. And this is when you have to be told that the second plane is on the World Trade Center. This was a photo op for him pushing direct instruction because our No Child Left Behind Act mandate that federally subsidized teaching efforts be empirically validated. What words? Yes, steal. And it's an incredibly controversial approach. Uh, because we make movies about teacher innovation. And this is the antithesis. You have, we are stealing teachers as employees' uh, ability to do anything but read this script. The problem, though, and this is just a huge tension, uh, do you care about human flourishing of your teachers uh, or do you care about... Uh, uh, teaching kids how to read because there's been a huge uh, project follow-through that studied 79,000 children uh, in 180 low-income communities uh, for over 20 years and direct instruction beat 16 other uh, teaching methods. It was first in reading, first in math, first in spelling, first in language. It's just, uh, And the news gets even better. It's especially effective for kids that are reading below grade. Especially effective for kids that are in economically disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods. Uh, and uh, something that's a little bit of a, uh, of a secret here, but it's especially good if you have uh, below average or average teachers. Uh, you know, there still may be super, really qualified teachers. There might be really great loan officers. But one of the things that's a broad trend if you're trying to run a business uh, or an organization with a thousand line item employees, giving them discretion versus having them follow the super crunched script, discretion is going to lose out. Okay, because you're uh, for every genius that you let free, you're going to let a lot of mediocre people innovate too. And this is the this is a real. I'm not resolving this for you. This is a real tension about which way you want to go. Now, by the way. Would, you know, uh, most people initially bristle. I've actually talked to some teachers who say there is one great advantage of direct instruction. There's no uh, class prep. You just walk in five minutes before and you open up. Good morning, class. So this is, by the way, Zig Engelman. He's the guy that uh, developed direct instruction. The popular, this is what the website says, the popular value of teacher creativity as high priorities must give way 
to the willingness to follow a certain carefully prescribed instructional practice uh, in person. This guy is a crusty uh, guy in his 80s who doesn't censor his speech anymore. We don't give a damn what the teacher feels. On the teacher's own time, they can hate it. We don't care as long as they do it. So, uh, and then the next question I went over too fast. The question is, does uh, that's the impact on employees. What about as consumers? Uh, uh, and here, it's a mixed bag, too. Harris uh, Casinos uh, in the United States, they have a super crunching algorithm that will predict your pain point. And the pain point is how much Harris predicts you can lose at a setting and still come back to gamble with them again. And they don't do this crudely. They take about 30 variables, your past, uh, and not just your past gambling experience. They, most gambling, you know, slot machines, they have these frequent gambler cards. So you slide, you slide them in so they have all your historic gambling data. They ma uh, mash this together with information on where you live, how rich you are, whether you have a dog and a cat or a cat. And they make individualized predictions. And if you start getting close to uh, this prediction, uh, Gary Loveman uh, sends somebody into action. By the way, Gary Loveman and I uh, have one thing in common. We both got PhDs in economics from MIT. Uh, he's the one that came up with these loyalty cards for, uh, uh, for gamblers. Uh, and uh, sadly, that's about where it ends with us because, you know, he's become chairman of Harris. He's the CEO of Harris. And... I am not. Um, and so what happens when you what happens when you get close to your pain point? Uh, he can't change the odds on the slot machine. He instead sends out a luck ambassador who will uh, before you let's say for Francis they calculate your pain point is 320 pounds. When you get up to 312, a luck ambassador will come out and say, oh. Uh, uh, we see that you like our steakhouse. Here's a free steak dinner. And they, you break off from gambling. You don't hit your pain point, And you come back and you lose another 312 next, <laughs> next week. And, you know, the economist in me, uh, I have mixed feelings about this. Uh, in some ways, it makes Francis's uh, uh, gambling experience uh, more pleasant. But, but, in, uh, but my problem is that it makes your gambling experience more pleasant. So stepping back, the, the view here is that super crunching, when, they, when businesses do it on quality, um, this is a great thing. It tends to help consumers find the products they want. When they start doing it on price, uh, uh, it can be a very bad thing. And this pain point issue, it ha it's the same thing actually happens. Airlines are doing pain points. It's called customer relationship management. And at the end of the day, they are making predictions about how happy you are and then discriminating against their happiest customers. All right? That is a different world. So think about airlines. Francis and I, we've uh, we're just been canceled out of a, a flight, and there's one seat open on the next flight. Who gets it? In the old days, it might be first come, first serve. Uh, it might be uh, the most frequent flyer. But now, actually, it's likely to be the not the most frequent flyer because the frequent flyers are kind of locked in with their miles and they're happy. They make a prediction of who, which of us is more pissed and maybe uh, 
or more angry and may not come back to the airlines. And they, they, by the way, keep track. Maybe I have had uh, three flights canceled in the last nine months. And so they figure that I am close to jumping ship, but you are going to stick with them even if they don't treat you well. So they're not going to treat you well. So happiness is not such a good thing anymore. Or another way to think about this regard to me, in the old days, okay, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but with super crunching, they don't have to wait for it to squeak. They can start discriminating uh, uh, in favor of disgruntled employees who are silent, uh, employee customers that are silent. That's a big difference. And one, that, and one at, at a minimum, I think we might think about that, that consumers should know that this is going on. Okay, thank you. And we're, we're doing pretty well. So uh, this must be the interpreter. I heard something today. came out. It was modestly successful. I think they were talking about assassinating President Sawani. And uh, I could show you more of that, but let's not. Um, uh, but not as successful as the, uh, as the uh, studio hoped. Uh, there's a famous line from William uh, Goldman, nobody knows anything, no one can predict the, uh, how much a movie will sell. But there's a, co a company out there, Epigogics, which does try to do just that. It tries to predict the unknowable. It tries to code up um, attributes of a script and predict how many tickets a movie will sell. And in fact, they did that on the interpreter. The initial script... Uh, which, by the way, is not the one they made into a movie. In the original one, the interpreter was a noble terrorist. And uh, it came in with a prediction of $33 million in ticket sales. Uh, uh, the shooting script, which, was that, which the studio came up with, completely turned it around. Instead of being a terrorist, the interpreter became the victim of terrorism. And it... Uh, uh, Epigogic predicted it would have a $69 million in ticket sales. Uh, and the actual box office uh, was just $4 million more. Uh, and this is part of a larger test that I'll talk about in a second. But what's interesting is that Epigogic's not only priced out, made a prediction about the initial script of this, they not only did this for 69, but they proposed script changes. They said if you put in a sidekick, you'll get $12 million more. <laughs> and if you, by the way, this is also too much Africa in this first in this movie. Move it more toward the United States and you'll get $4.9 million. Uh, and they used, by the way, an, another uh, approach, which is, uh, uh, beside regression, something called a neural network. I could talk more about it. This is part of a nine-movie experiment. Epigogics accurately predicted the revenues of six out of nine movies. By the way, I talk about this extensively, but there's a great, uh, great article in The New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell on this as well. And uh, six out of nine isn't perfect, but the studio's track record is only three out of nine. So this is twice as much, uh, uh, twice the rate of success in prediction. And for an individual studio, major studio, that could be a billion dollars in lost revenue if they could uh, stop from making uh, unsuccessful movies. On the other side, you know, some, this gives a lot of people the willies, including me. I'm on, but I'm on both sides of this. In some ways, this sounds to me like the death of art 
will have this flattening uniformity. Uh, it's interfering with the author's vision. I, that, that's my first reaction. Uh, but part of me thinks uh, studios have been inter interfering with the author's vision for decades. We've had flattened uniformity of genre films sequelizations for years, uh, I'm not sure this is going to be worse. If you're going to interfere, at least do it on good predictions instead of lousy predictions. And to be the uh, economist here, this is really shifting power in some ways toward the consumers. It's giving consumers more what they want instead of the elite artists. But anyway, we people might care about it. I'm running out of time, so let me just say there are uh, people have talked lots about uh, privacy horror stories. When you have this uh, massive data sets, they can get lost. But I want to say that there are other types of privacy risks. Uh, we are on, uh, about to lose or walking around privacy. You know, when I walk out on the street uh, a few blocks from here, no one is going to know who I am in, uh, currently. But these massive data sets of facial recognition are uh, helping people Polar Rose is one of them. They have 3D uh, facial recognition that is being very accurate. This is a picture of an actual uh, uh, <coughs> felon who was out, who they were looking for, and he applied for a driver's license, and they caught him through this. Uh, by the way, one more thing on this. This is so accurate, one test of it, it is, uh, it is also caught uh, about 200 identical twins that go in because they say, oh, well, the twin already had it, and so it uh, identified them as already being in the system. So uh, it's, uh, we're getting to the point that when you walk outside, somebody takes a picture of you with their camera, uh, they'll be able to identify who you are, and then the game is up. They can mash that together with all kinds of things. There's a company called Carillion that will do challenge questions to you, even if you have never... Uh, register. You know, you're used to maybe giving your own challenge question by telling them the name of your pet, but you can go into a Harrods and apply for a a, uh, uh, a credit card, and Harrods may come may use Carillion to come back at you and say, and this has happened to me, it's really eerie. They'll come back and say, um, which of the three cars did you have registered to your name in 1987? And by the way, uh, which of these three cities uh, did your mom live in in 1974? And they do this in about five seconds. And, that, and this kind of thing will be now available to anybody that, as soon as you get a, uh, a cell phone picture taken of you. Uh, so we're about to lose new dimensions of privacy. Uh, another thing that's coming is we're going to start to lose uh, uh, our privacy about the future. People are going to be able to make predictions about what you'll do in the future. Visa and a company called Axiom can make pretty good probabilities about the chance that you'll divorce. Uh, you know, if you know people's credit card histories, you can do lots of things. By the way, this is uh, the least important of these, but I, I, I have a website where you can actually do some super crunching yourself. You can go on there, put in five or six variables, uh, and you can predict when your due date is if you're pregnant, or you can predict how long you'll live, or you can predict um, how tall your kid will be. And indeed, you can predict the uh, probability that your marriage will last. Uh, so, what about the future? And uh, basically, I, I want to say that the rise of super crunching uh, is not the end of intuition. Uh, instead, 
in the future, uh, intuition is going to have to be, you, you have to be willing to put your intuition to the test and that the best decision makers in the future will be people who are willing to toggle back and forth, to start with an intuition and get some numbers, go back to the drawing board of their intuitions and, uh, and be willing and comfortable uh, to, to put it to the test. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, this has been the strongest praise I have heard about statistics since I was a student at university <laughs> and I had a very um, good professor who tried to um, somehow motivate us. And I think um, you have uh, refreshed that in my memory about the merits of statistics. But of course, your talk is not only about statistics and your book is not only about statistics, it's about data, the Terra data, these monsters, that um, um, as you suggest, uh, the, it is possible to make good uses of them. And of course, it is about machines. And uh, I think a, a number of uh, your um, examples, arguments, things you alluded to um, are strong arguments and perhaps somewhat controversial. So we may have an interesting discussion now. And I would like to open to questions. There are microphones around, so people will have one is here. So we'll wait for the microphone to uh, move. Please mention your uh, name and affiliation before your question. Um, there, are, there are hands up there until Francis formulate her question. So um, the gentleman in the middle at the back. Okay. Thanks. Hi. Um, James Buchanan. Um, Along, your argument seems to be that this would sort of help consumers, sort of help society by getting rid of the bad things. But um, the other side of that is that by standardizing, you'll get rid of the very best as well. Um, so you start to lose some of the sort of perhaps some of the opportunities for creative destruction in the economy. And perhaps, say, with teaching, you lose the opportunity to get the very best, the genius. So do you think there's any possibility that over time we might become less innovative, um, you know, the pace of change will slow down, and that actually overall consumers and society lose out? Well, I actually think it's a mixed bag for consumers. So again, again the simplest thing I would say to you is when um, companies super crunch on quality, uh, it tends to help consumers, and it helps to do it in a non-flattening way. When Amazon helps me find the book that I want, uh, it's, it's actually not just the best sellers, but they help me dive into the long tail. And Netflix rents over 90% of its movies because of its super crunching that helps me. Help. And that's just, I'm just a complete fan of that kind of uh, recommendation engines that uh, variate what consumers do. And, and even things like upselling where you call in uh, to talk about one product and they try to sell you on something else. That is now they will make predictions about what you actually want to buy besides this other product. And I hate upselling, but if they're going to do it, I'd rather have them upsell me on something I'm interested in. So 
that's still a, a net improvement. Uh, uh, but this um, this number crunching on uh, price uh, is something scary, and uh, they'll be able to figure out how much you're willing to pay, and they'll come try to screw you. And uh, uh, by the way, Faircast tells it's I don't know how the, this horse race is going to end up, and there's going to be super crunching by consumer side groups and counter tactics, and I and the case is still out. But I'm trying to put you on notice. I'm scared about price. Uh, uh, and in some ways, another way to put this, a lot of these examples I've talked to you are predictions about happiness. And sometimes they try to predict your happiness to make you happier, and sometimes they predict your happiness to try to discriminate against you if you're happy, to discriminate against the unhappy. And I feel differently about those, those two types of things. And, uh, but it, it's a really excellent question. I'm on the innovation point. Innovation, um, so look. I, this, I don't think I would enjoy to be a direct uh, instruction uh, teacher. I, I would not uh, survive well under scripted uh, daily life. Uh, but uh, most of the teacher innovation uh, is crap. And let me tell you why. It, you, you have no good control, and we have no sense of whether it works or not. And everybody keeps reinventing the wheel, and whether it works or doesn't, society gets no payoff. So uh, we've been we haven't been making much progress on pedagogy uh, for two millennia, I think. And now, if you're going to make innovative pro progress, if you're going to run experiments, you don't let the lab rats control the experiments. You've got to run them from above. Uh, so I'm trying to be a little bit controversial. Uh, uh, I am a little bit worried that we're going to put too much concentrated control on who runs the experiments and which ones happen. But I don't think... Uh, we feel good about all this innovation, and we make these. I, I've cried at a lot of these movies. You know, they're all about all these teaching movies. There are about a dozen of them about teachers that uh, to serve with love was an innovate. You know, that was an innovate. I cried at to serve with love, but you know, that's not a great way to run a system. Okay, more questions. The gentleman in the third row, the white. Thanks very much. Um, just a small quibble. How do you account for uh, freak variables? I mean, um, in the winemaking example, usually when an expert says something and they try to predict the quality of the wine, they'd at least put in the clause all other things being equal. Um, you know, we have examples where people forget to clean out the vats and then you have a wine that tastes like ammonia. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, would never be accounted for in that. Yeah, and so... Uh, Freak variables will make the uh, super crunching, uh, the statistical predictions, do badly. And uh, in the literature, some people talk about this as the broken leg uh, conundrum, that you're trying to predict whether Francis is going to go to the movie next week, and you have a, uh, and you have a, a regression that has 12 variables, and you have a very strong prediction that she's going to go. But something you haven't controlled for, as I happen to know, she just broke her leg last night. And do you, are you still going to do that? And so there's sometimes there will be a freak variable that would strongly cause you to think something else. Uh, but here's the problem. And humans, because they know there are these freak anomalous situations that would lead you on to wave off the prediction of the statistical model, they demand, uh, uh, they de uh, and they, we, I also, say it would be crazy for me not to deviate from this. 
But here's the sad thing. When you start allowing these deviations, these discretions, we deviate way too much. And on average, the deviations uh, hurt. And so um, it is, and by the way, and people die because of this. There are predictions about whether you should let uh, uh, inmates out on parole. And the freak variable problem comes up there. The st statistics say you should let this, uh, keep this person in. And, but you have, you have all this incredibly strong evidence, you think. And or the idea that you would not give any discretion to the parole board to let this person out, it's unthinkable. It's probably unconstitutional in the United States. But study after study shows that when they, you give them discretion, they screw it up and people, and people die, okay? Because they, uh, they, uh, they wave off discretion too much. While I'm impressed with um, you showing number crunching being so effective, I'm disappointed that you're only talking about regression and random. There is this thing called logical analysis of data mm -hmm. that Peter Hammer started using integer programming, which helps doctors to decide on what tests are the really effective ones and things like that. Why limit it to only regression and random? In, in part, let me be frank, because of, it's probably a little bit of my... Um, uh, of my professional bias of being an economist. I do, and sadly I skipped out because I was taking a little bit too too long, but the neural network stuff that is behind Epigogius is closer to that. And uh, uh, and to be honest, the, the jury is clearly out uh, under what domains um, uh, the, uh, uh, let me, one way to say, uh, the artificial intelligence uh, or uh, driven procedures, whether they're going to win out in the day or under what context they'll do, but it's they are uh, they are definitely uh, in the mix of these uh, of the uh, things that are doing better than humans, and uh, uh, so and they may they may end up uh, beating out regressions. I I do think though that there's going to be a separate. Uh, we don't. There's going to be, always be a separate need for randomization because you know basically what do you, uh, there's historical data, and if you don't have this, and it may be that these things that you're talking about are better than regression for historical. But if the historical data isn't good enough, you got to run a, uh, a randomized trial to produce some more evidence. The gentleman at the top. My name is Jim Kennedy, Yale, 1944, war, but earlier. <laughs> um, the terrific mobility in the global uh, securities market is giving rise to a whole new breed of uh, expertise. Those who claim to be able to advise how to maximize income on the rises and the falls. Um, I wonder whether there, anyone that you know of has ever uh, subjected these claims uh, to uh, sort of analysis. Uh, so uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, empirical analysis of, of financial claims, whether um, and let me use your question to, to step back, by the way. This summer, 
has been a, a very bad summer for the quants uh, in predicting financial uh, volatility. And, um, and so uh, uh, a related question, too, is uh, so you could take all these quants uh, that are out there, quantitative people that are crunching numbers to make predictions for hedge funds. Uh, uh, isn't this an uh, strong evidence that super crunching doesn't work? And, uh, and I'd say, well, it's, it's certainly evidence that super crunching can go wrong. And I say in my book, when super crunching is done badly in medicine, people can die. And when it's done badly in finance, people can lose their shirts. Uh, but I'm still a little bit more of an optimist with regard to the quants. I think that the quantitative analysis of finance uh, is still uh, uh, makes better prediction than humans. That's my ma main point I hope you've heard in this talk. The, there are a couple problems, though, that we've seen this summer. Is One, uh, uh, people have relied on the predictions too much. Uh, people know not to rely on the human, uh, uh, at least viscerally they do. Uh, on these quants, these hedge funds would make outlandishly large bets with borrowed money, and there's not much room to go wrong. And, and that's one problem, that uh, over-reliance. The second one that is related is uh, another important theme of this is super crunching should not be trust me statistics. That one way to stop it from being lies, damn lies kind of stuff is to have more than one super cruncher. These firms should have super cruncher audits and or they should have multiple super crunchers to make not just the genius in the corner that they say oh that they you don't want to start bowing down to a single a super cruncher as opposed to the old fashioned uh, uh, experts but you want to have this be an open uh, field so that you, we have a little bit more confidence and uh, and while I still think that one of the coolest things that like the fair cast that told you a prediction and how confident it is we can't uh, we can't just take those uh, precision estimates at face value. And we have to, uh, we still have, and there's some place for humans to uh, think about how much they're going to rely on these numbers. The lady. Thanks. Uh, Linda Caution, LSE. Um, I've got really huge concerns about uh, commodification of what's not previously commodified. For instance, direct teaching is uh, really commodified. Mm -hmm. um, and, and certainly about the, uh, the political manipulation that's in there, and I'm sure that's going on big time anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'd really like to know is how does it go with horse racing? <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is a place, by the way, where uh, neural network predictions of uh, there's a great study on I guess it's actually dog racing in Arizona where they did a very cool natural experiment. They took, uh, 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 I think, a dozen habitues of the uh, dog track and they gave each of these uh, uh, regular bettors, successful bettors, $100 and asked them to place 100 $1 bets. And they gave uh, the statistical prediction that was based on neural networks $100 and, uh, and the... Uh, neural network predictions did uh, did a lot better, and uh, and now if you Google uh, neural networks and uh, horse racing or dog racing, you'll have there's a tremendous explosion. Now these are betting markets that are competitive, and they're going uh, 
paramutual, and so uh, uh, the fact that there might have been money in the past, once a lot of people start betting the neural network predictions, I'm not, I do not go out and start uh, trying to make money in the in the dog racing based on uh, based on neural networks. But it's another place where uh, trying to uh, it's it's probably based on more than a dozen factors. And yeah, I believe that uh, statistical prediction is going to do better than experiential experts, uh, uh, and especially in the long run, anomalies. Uh, think again about the anomalies. Uh, you want to predict Supreme Court cases. I mean, it's just uh, it's really hard to wrap your head around this. But that that accrued thing with just six variables could uh, can beat out people that actually know what what the issue is in the case and are experts on the area. Uh, uh, it doesn't take much uh, in, in circumstance after circumstance to do uh, as good or better job. Hi, my name is Matt Tilbrook. Um, I was going to ask, what do you think about when super crunching starts to feed back on itself? Uh, say the, the movie uh, prediction example you raised there, uh, and they, they were able to predict the revenues. There's a certain zero-sum game in attendance of movies, so everybody starts predicting them. Yeah, so that's so. Uh, a lot of games are zero-sum, the paramutual game, if a lot of people start playing it. And I try to be quick but careful. Uh, the, first, the first firm that starts using Epigogic seriously, they can pick up a billion dollars for a while, but when others start doing that, it's not going to, each of them is going to be pick up a billion dollars because they're all trying to steal from a, a relatively fixed pile of, of ticket money. And, uh, but in equilibrium, uh, uh, competition over better quality of what the consumers want uh, uh, will uh, we'll get into diminishing returns, uh, but it doesn't mean that we should have an, I don't expect an equilibrium where it would collapse or be... Uh, uh, be non-expensive, and I and I also I am um, these these neural networks uh, could produce actually a greater diversity in uh, picture making. Uh, these uh, these studio execs are scared, and uh, you know this was the, this was the summer of the of the sequel. You know, and I guess every summer is the summer of the sequel, and they uh, and they what's another 1970s TV show that we can make into a movie? You know, uh, can we be doing? What would it mean to be more flattening than than right now? It could be that these 200 variables actually expand diversity, uh, uh, but that's a test. That's a separate test that we might uh, that we might want to run. I think there are some questions. Uh, the gentleman at the top. Yeah, you in the white shirt. Uh, Edward Greggs. Um, my question, I guess, is slightly similar to the last one. Uh, I was just thinking that the whole proposition is contingent on the idea that the end result is somehow quantifiable. And with, with some things, you're trying to make more money, then that's, that's, you, can, you can do that. Whereas with some cases, and even if you're trying to get children to pass a certain test, which tests how good they are reading or writing, you can do that. But if the, the test is going to be human happiness, then is that ever really quantifiable? And will you not, with, you know, if, if all films do get a, a sidekick built in and are set in New York City, I, I become less happy, yeah. I would have thought. Um, so I just want to get your, your thoughts on Excellent. that. And uh, uh, I, uh, 
there are several limits. And by the way, so uh, there are several limitations to the subtitle of this book, which is not my preferred subtitle. The uh, uh, U.S. subtitle is the title of this uh, lecture, Why Thinking by Numbers is the way, New Way to Be Smart. Uh, I actually think there are several limitations of things that you cannot predict. Uh, one Big one-off events uh, you cannot uh, do tests on or, or there's not historical data. And you raise another important one. There are some things where you just don't have a single, you don't know exactly what you're optimizing. So what would be, uh, what is the LSE um, maximizing when it admits students? Is it their salary when they get out? I don't think so. You know, is it that they want, they're proud of many of their students. And so if you don't know, if you can't put into numbers what you're trying to maximize, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a difficulty of using this as as prediction. But even there, I don't want to go too far. There may be subparts that you care about, if not the ultimate thing that you would would think about. And uh, and even here, I, I I do feel part of this death of art. And my God, they're going to really say that it. Uh, and by, there are uh, racist overtones of this thing about moving it to New York out of Africa to to sell money. Uh, I'm concerned about that. But there is this other side uh, that I feel if consumers are willing to pay more for it, that is a strong sign that they like it better. And so in some context, I am uh, willing to uh, uh, use willingness to pay as a proxy for happiness. But I am a Ph.D. economist. You know, that's, that's one of the things I'm, I think I, I'd get in trouble if I don't say that. Well, um, can I make a comment on, um, I, I recognize the trends that you describe, and in that I think it's very informative and it's very important to know these trends. I wonder, however, whether you overstate uh, a rather artificial um, dichotomy, both in relation to, uh, both about the relation of uh, intuition and data, mm -hmm and machines um, uh, and humans, in the sense that uh, data on their own do not make any predictions. It's the regression equations that you very elegantly presented there. And that requires, unlike the example you gave, actually understanding the logic of why a prediction is made. So uh, the, the predictions do not come out of data. The predictions require that consistent, continuous mm -hmm. effort of understanding the causes. Mm -hmm. And also, it's never a human professional versus a machine uh, who is better. It's really hybrids. It's all professionals use mm -hmm. machines nowadays. All professionals have data in their disposal. Why mm -hmm. do you choose to emphasize this dichotomy? Do we have to make a choice yeah. like this? So you're definitely right on the first point that it is humans that run the regressions and have discretion on how they set it up. In some ways, that's why I want their to be multiple super crunchers. If, if super crunching was non-discretionary, then why do you need multiple ones? But there's a lot of art and innovation in how you crunch numbers. And indeed, that's why Steve Levitt's going to get a Nobel Prize, because he's so inventive as a super cruncher himself. But on the second point, I, I want to resist you a little bit, because even though lots of people have access to information, one, many experts still don't use it. 
And so there are lots of circumstances. And indeed, an iron law is that people have the hardest time figuring out how super crunchers could help them. They tend to think, whatever I do, and I'm, by the way, one of these people, whatever I do is too important to be helped. I have to beat myself up. No, apply it to yourself. Gun to the head. And, uh, and, and so it's easier to figure it out how it helps other people. So a lot of people don't do it. They resist it. Uh, and then even on the hybrids, here's, a, here's a, a scary thing. On the hybrids, the, and this is, not the, the, this is not incontrovertible, but I think that the, the strongest evidence is if you're going to do hybrids, it's a very demeaning type. The best way of bringing together humans and, uh, and statistics is not to have the uh, statistics as helpers of the humans, but to have the humans as helpers of the statistics in the following sense. You make better predictions. If you have, if you give the humans the discre- the human decision maker the discretion, they do the same thing I was telling you about. They wave off the statistics too much and they parole too many people who go out and kill, right? Instead, if you want to do a hybrid, the way to do it is you have uh, some experts code in their views and you use those human, subjective human codings as a variable into the regression. And the regression will then tell you, let's say you have three parole officers. They all rate the uh, inmates, and you throw each of their separate things in, and then the regression tells you, actually, A is pretty good, B is mediocre, and C sucks. Okay, And the regression will tell you, and you can actually get a little bit better prediction by having humans be the uh, data servants of the regression. Of course, there's a separate human that runs the regression, but as far as making the predictions, uh, the sad thing for us again, and this is in some ways a sad lecture, okay? Because, uh, uh, but in the old days, it uh, it used to be people think, oh, I can can do information, reference librarians are just as good as Google, right? And, you know, we've given up on that. I'm trying to get you, of course, if you want to know the second stanza of a John Donne poem, you don't ask a reference librarian. Okay, that's stupid, right? You go to Google. And I'm trying to tell you we've got to give up on something else. If you want to figure out the appropriate weights of prediction, uh, uh, you might have a hybrid model, but it's going to be with the regression on top. I think we still have people who wish to ask questions. The gentleman, the best, and I think this is the last question. Good, we don't good. have more time. My name's Tim Harford, and, and like you, I write books about economics. Um, uh, you said it was a sad lecture, and uh, it, for me, it's, a very, it's been a very happy lecture. I've enjoyed it. Um, everybody seems to, to take a very, you know, to, to feel that you've been uh, too optimistic, uh, but I think you've been too pessimistic. Uh, you, you haven't, perhaps you do in your book, uh, you haven't looked at, you know, what's going to happen uh, once supercrunching becomes more commonplace. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, when all the, uh, the first grade, second grade, third grade classes are effectively taught by robots, then the teachers are free to do something more important. Uh, we can have uh, teachers uh, devoting more time to kids with special needs or kids who are very talented. And uh, you're also you're too down on price discrimination, as I'm sure you know. When companies get very, very good at price discriminating, if, if companies are able to really rip you off and, and take you for a ride, 
That means that they're, they're also willing to offer you a better deal just to get you through the door or to get me mm-hmm. through the door. Uh, so no, I, I think in the long run, uh, the trends you pointed out, uh, you know, I, I'm not sad about them at all. Do you think that everybody else in the, in the hall is, uh, is a bit too gloomy about your predictions? <laughs> uh, well, it gives me some solace to have... Uh, uh, to be criticized as being uh, a cheerleader and at sometimes as being a, a pessimist. And so I'm trying uh, uh, on net, I think super crunching has improved the world. Okay, And I am, uh, I am an optimist, uh, but I, uh, I, the world, uh, the possibility that uh, uh, teachers will be able to bargain for and or, and or efficiently contract for some discretion. Another thing is a possibility, but uh, loan officers haven't gotten it. Uh, if you are doing door-to-door sales, all you try to get the person to do, 100%, it's a scripted from beginning to end. And so the question here, it's an empirical possibility that scripting the entire day is the uh, most efficient way. And uh, so one thing... But, you know, uh, it depends on the job. When it comes to, I actually feel different about Walmart than, uh, than uh, teaching. And this sounds, and I'm a little bit perverse on this. Uh, so, I, to me, teaching kids how to uh, read is predominant. And if we have to sacrifice some robots to get kids to read to grade, I'd do it. Uh, I don't... Um, I, I feel differently about Walmart. And the idea that if we have to pay a few more sense to make the Walmart jobs uh, uh, more uh, fulfilling, uh, then uh, I, 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 wanna, I don't want all of Walmart to be scripted. And so uh, I, I am a, on this thing, I'm, I see, I want to send mixed signals. I think the enthusiasm uh, does come across the book, actually, mm-hmm. and the optimism. And um, the book is on sale uh, outside if uh, you want to um, uh, test it y- yourselves. You also forgot to mention that uh, at your website you offer people the possibility of playing a little bit with these ideas. That's right. Come to supercrunchers.com and there are 30. Uh, you can get into the game yourself. Plug in some stuff and uh, predict all kinds of things of, uh, about yourself and your friends. Thanks. Thanks for coming out tonight. Thank you very much for coming.